This is the European edition of Breaking Banks, the world's number one fintech podcast and radio show. We bring you the European unicorns, startups, founders, regulators and leaders innovating the rapidly evolving fintech scene today. A truly localized podcast with both English and local language content with some of the world's most well-known hosts and influencers in the fintech sector globally. Join us every week as we explore what makes the European Union a phenomenal proving ground for many of the fastest growing fintech plays in the world today. Okay, let's roll. Hey guys, so welcome to the live show of Breaking Backs Europe at Singapore Fintech Festival. I am Matteo Rizzi, the executive producer of the show, and uh, I'm here with uh, Costa Peric. Uh, you know, Costa, you know, it's so great to have you here. Hi, Matteo, indeed, so great to meet you again. It's been, it's, Costa and I have been like uh, former colleagues, but most importantly, friends for a long while. And I'm curious, uh, you know, what brings you to Singapore, Costa? I know that. Uh, you know, you and I talked about this conversation and you have some news to share. By the way, guys, full disclaimer, Costa is uh, what uh, I call the father of uh, the financial networks because uh, he's the architect of SWIFT back then, he's my go-to person for anything around financial services, so I must say that. So Costa, you have, you know, the, you, you know, we have been looking, the world has been looking up to you, you know, for the past uh, 25 on, years. <laughs> Thanks so much. <laughs> yeah, what brings me here is um, basically to uh, meet some people from the Asia, Asia region, the 10 countries here in, um, in this region that uh, still have a lot of financially excluded people and as perhaps I should remind everyone, I'm working at the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in the financial services for the poor strategy and it's all about financial inclusion. And so uh, that's why I'm here uh, meeting the usual stakeholders that I do meet with are uh, Governments, central banks, because they are those who will essentially run the payment and identity infrastructure as a digital public infrastructure that would be inclusive for everyone. Um, but also private sector entities, because once uh, this digital public infrastructure is there, then it's important to foster innovation on top of it with all sorts of uh, applications. So that's kind of in a nutshell what I'm here. So I've been following the evolution of Mojalop since uh, its inception, right? Yes. So uh, now you recently like uh, make a couple of super important new hires, you know, yes, and uh, yes. can you please share, you know, what Mojalop stands for, mm -hmm. you know, in the in the financial in the financial community? Yes. So Mojaloop is uh, what we call a digital public good that serves as a building block for digital public infrastructures. And uh, it, Mojaloop is about payments and it is an open source software that enables countries and regions to easily build a state-of-the-art inclusive instant payment system. Mojaloop is one of digital public goods. There is another one called MOSIP that does the same for digital identity systems. So Mojaloop is um, uh, a tool uh, that can be used uh, uh, for, for this. Typically when uh, digital public infrastructure is built, the technology that powers it, it can be sourced from commercial providers, that exists, it can be sourced by uh, essentially in-house development, and in that case, Mojaloop is very helpful. Many of the countries that we work with are low-medium income countries that don't necessarily have, you know, the skills and the people, and so having an open source software that already encapsulates 
experience from many other countries is so great for them to get started, not make the same mistakes, and, and uh, do that, yeah. So we are now in Asia, but you and I share this uh, love for the African of continent, course, yes. and this is where I want to say Mojaloop uh, has uh, started, you know, yes. its operation a few yes. years, yes. three years back. And, uh, and by the way, Moja Loop, Moja is Swahili for one. So Moja Loop, one loop, which is meaning the, you know, what Moja Loop does is like a one level playing field. Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, I wanted to get the sense of, uh, you know, in Africa, but it, we could actually make the same sort of, uh, uh, um, the same consideration for Asia. We started with uh, what we call the usual suspect countries, you know? So everyone went to Nigeria, to Kenya, to the poster childs, you know, yes. African innovation. Yes. Yes. But back then, nobody really, you know, uh, sort of looked for innovation or opportunity to uh, digitize financial services in what I call frontiers market, you know? Yes. Francophone Africa at the beginning, but like a tier two and tier three, if this is a way to call it, you yes, know, Anglophone, yes, maybe it's yes. not the best way, but you yes, see what I mean. Yes, so, yes. You know, do you think that uh, right now, like emerging markets are ready for the frontiers part of them to get enabled? Is that a good time? And is uh, what you guys are building, uh, you know, one of the best way for them uh, to do this revolution? In a nutshell, yes, now is the time, because now we're to the point of making, we are past the innovation phase, you know, the invention of mobile money in Africa, the, you know, the leapfrogging. Now we're in the scaling phase. And my dream is that every single country in Africa by 2030, has an inclusive instant payment system. Every single country. That's bold, my yes, friend. I yes, love it. Yes. And uh, to do that, so it is possible to do that because we now have been helping many countries already in Asia, like Pakistan and India, in uh, Africa, with Tanzania, Rwanda, um, the uh, the, the YME region. So we know how to, we know that this is possible. We know that the countries wants, want to do this. Why? Because, for example, in the COVID era, every country, they noticed that if you have a digital system, it's way easier, faster to deliver aid financial aid to your, your people and, and so on and so forth. So we know that it's possible. The countries want it. And, and so the challenge now is to get the assistance, the tools like Mojano and the funding from the international community to help them do that. And that is what I call the scaling period. So the innovation period has gone and proven now we are in a scaling period. So, and, uh, you know, I am uh, kind of... And, and by the way, we see countries like Burundi, countries like South Sudan uh, come up... Uh, so the true frontiers market. Yes, exactly. So I'm oversimplifying on purpose for our auditors to better understand, but, uh, you know, I kind of imagine that... Uh, for a single country, you know, with the proper like a push and, uh, you know, the regulators playing their role, you know, is uh, especially using uh, this common infrastructure, it is feasible, you know, to do a local uh, instant payment system. Yes. But how about uh, the interoperability Yes. Between one country and another, because that's a real challenge, right? Yes. So it's an excellent point, Matteo, because once we have instant payment systems deployed, then connecting them is the next logical step. Why? Because many countries in Africa 
and in Asia, by the way, are recipients of remittances, sometimes huge corridors. And when you have an instant payment system on the, in the country, then the last mile delivery of remittances is easy, instant. So, and to give you an example, um, we are sponsoring a project to connect the system called Buna in, in Arab countries with a Rust in Pakistan, the instant payment there. There is a huge corridor to Pakistan. And so when that is active, someone in Abu Dhabi who has a bank account can send money instantaneously to a wallet in Pakistan. Same, uh, same for Africa, many countries celebrate. So that's kind of one use case that's very important. The second use case is regional payments. There is an increasing amount of payments, small value payments for MSLEs and small merchants across borders of neighboring countries. But today, if you're in Tanzania and want to buy something from someone two kilometers across the border in Kenya, it's a problem. And actually your payment may be set in New York because you do it and, and so on. So we don't. And so this is the other big advantage. Once you have a mesh, you have this network, then you can mesh all these instant payment systems together for the next uh, benefit. And of course, uh, you know, at the infrastructure level, it is much easier because they have uh, Mojalope as a common ground, right? So in this case, some some of them, many of them will have Mojalope. Then so it's very easy. Even if they don't have Mojalope, it's a matter of setting you know the right protocol and and so on but but if the, if there is moja loop already there then it's even easier because you yeah. so uh, i want to talk a little bit about uh, you know the 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 deployment phase you yes. you you have created you have a series of partners yes you have created uh, a not new anymore but a new structure called africa nenda exactly and uh, why don't you explain a little bit, uh, you know, the inception of it? Because you know we have been yeah. talking about this when it yeah. was in uh, like yeah, yeah. Uh, in in creation, you know, and and now is is in full uh, at full speed. So yes. What do they do? Why they're there? And what's the mission? Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, uh, as we moved from the original innovation phase in some countries in Africa and Asia, we. And we started seeing this demand grow from other countries for assistance. And it was it became obvious and necessary that we needed a, a, a forces on the ground in Africa, in this case, to help. Because you cannot bring, and it doesn't make sense to fly in people for, you know, as all of these projects. Uh, and so that led to this uh, idea to create a network of experts in payment systems in Africa for Africa. And that is what's called, what is called now today Africa Nenda. By the way, Nenda means let's go. So Africa, let's go forward. And so this network of experts now exists. Their main purpose is technical assistance. So they can engage stakeholders in a country that wishes to implement an instant payment system. They can engage them on setting the right regulation, uh, architecting the right solution for that instant payment system, choosing the technology, managing these projects, and so and so all of that they are capable of doing and they are capable of doing in many countries all at once in africa because as i said now we are in this movement of scaling to cover all of africa so that's what africa nenda is my question is not at all uh, uh i just say it, uh, i don't want to like uh, unveil future project but uh, do you do you see a need for an Asia Nenda? Yes, and that is in the books. That is in the books. We need to work on that. Uh, too early indeed to tell 
news right now, but but uh, I really like the way you said it. There is a need for a Asia Nanda kind of organization because there is a lot of demand here. That's why, I, you know, to rewind us to the beginning, that's why I'm here because there is a lot of demand here as well in Asia and uh, Pacific Island countries for assistance and uh, not having a local entity that can coordinate this is now becoming a problem that we need to solve for. So, uh, and, and another, just uh, uh, another important player in all of this is also the World Bank, both in Africa and Asia, uh, that is also there to provide technical assistance. But again, the important point is to have an organization focused on this, uh, like Africa and yeah. So, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation was uh, uh, kind enough to be one of the partners of the Inclusive Fintech Forum in, uh, in, in Kigali. And uh, there will be a new edition next year. Actually, digital public goods infrastructure was, was one of the main theme of the conference because the importance of and the influence of the regulators is very important. And as you know, the fabric brand, you know, of Elevandi is really bring this regulator dialogue yeah. into, into the system. But another very important theme of the, the Inclusive Fintech Forum was, uh, I want to say, the adjacencies of uh, the, financial, the financial services system, such as uh, pensions for the poor, mm -hmm. micro-insurance services, uh, identity. So, it, it, payments is, of course, uh, the, the, the blood, right? The, the, the Once you create uh, this digital inclusion, then what are uh, the natural steps, you know? And what have you observed, you know? Is the evolution of uh, the, you know, the, the additional services you can build. Take into the account that selling a pension product in Africa is very different yes. uh, than yes. selling it yes. uh, or proposing yes. it uh, yes. to more mature countries. So, um, as you say, the payment platforms and ID platforms are basically the rails, uh, the, the blood. Uh, <laughs> without that, you, you can't do much. So what we do when we deploy these rails, we have deployed these rails is essentially aimed to connect all the people so that they can transact. And that is the basic of the basic. Like P2P, I can send you money instantaneously. That's kind of the rails and the basic setup. But to your point, this is only scratching the surface because there are many other needs of payments and I always say uh, the best payments is the one that you don't see. Like if you take an Uber, you walk out of the car, you, you slam the door, you're done, the payment happens. Same here. How do we incentivize the Ubers of Africa for pensions, for insurance, for merchant services, for loans and credits? I think that is the, that's the true goal, the true benefit of all that we are doing. Rolling out platforms and connecting everyone, if it is for not being used, then what's the point? So it's really, um, I like the way you said it, it's really, that is really the goal, is to foster this rich innovation, in the case of Africa, by Africans, for Africans. The last thing in my mind that we need to do is to help replicate the Western financial system of, let's say, credit ratings and things. I think there are much better ways uh, that relate to the culture of the people, the, 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 the way they are and the way they transact that can be adapted. And that is where uh, it's important to foster this innovation. And that brings us you and I to our beginnings really of, of fostering collaborative innovation on top of platforms. Absolutely. That that slogan reminds us, you know, something yeah, and hopefully yeah. 
a few of our auditors as well. Yeah. Costa, maybe one last question and, you know, taking out your, uh, your, your official hat, uh, because I know that uh, the foundation doesn't do any direct investments in, mm -hmm. in, in startups, but, uh, you know, one of my, uh, I want to say favorite topics is uh, what I call the, the paradigm change in uh, the way you look at investments in Africa, you know, because everyone is chasing unicorns, you know, yes. in, in, the more, in the more mature markets. And uh, I believe that uh, this model doesn't work for Africa and certainly does not work for frontiers market. And it is actually very healthy to build a few million dollars of business in whatever financial services you can think of. And then maybe either sell it or like make it grow steadily. And we need patient capital, basically, and a form of mindset that I'm not sure a lot of investors get it. Yeah. What's your view on this? So. Uh, I think you are right. It's the same that I was just saying in terms of the even the services. Like the services need to. We don't know what services African requires. Africans know, and I think it's the same. We don't know what's the best investment mechanism for Africa. African investors will know. The question then is, how do we get and. The Gates Foundation contribution to this is essentially the convening power. We are neutral, so we can convene these people to basically get them the stage to actually look at what is happening and offer them the opportunity to engage with, with uh, startups and, and so on. So the Gates Foundation doesn't necessarily invest in startups. On a few occasions, we actually do, but it's not our main. But our main uh, um, tool or vector of action is the convening power to get the startups to be in touch with the investors in Africa, and that's that's something that we do. Call it accelerator, call it convening, whatever you call it. But these meetings are very important, where where this these people get in touch with each other and then hopefully money will start to flow. Costa, you know, uh, I, I was talking with a friend of mine and saying that, uh, you know, catching up, uh, you know, with uh, old friends is uh, <laughs> just per se is, is an amazing reason yeah. to, you know, to, to come here. exactly to yeah. be here and to come to these sort of events. The, the Singapore FinTech Festival has taken a dimension that was unimaginable. You know, you and I came, were here seven, six, seven years ago, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what was the first uh, reaction when you came here and you see this? Uh, <laughs> you know, exactly, right? Yeah, amazing, yeah. no? Yeah, it, it is amazing how this, this has become, in my mind, the, I, I think, the event that is focused on inclusion uh, and the right ingredients for me to come. Uh, and, and, and I think a lot of other people just think the same. They just look at this, this thing here. In, and yeah, I, I went to the registration this morning. It's amazing, like the number of people. So guys, uh, that was uh, Costa Peric, uh, um Direct, Deputy Director of the Financial Services for the Poor Division yes. of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and most importantly, a very, very good friend. This is Breaking Banks Europe live from Singapore FinTech Festival, and it's a wrap. I'm here with Michael Neha, founder of FinTech FinTech. Welcome to Breaking Banks Europe. Thank you, Matai. It's a pleasure to see you again and to be part of your show. Thank you. So why don't you give us a little bit of the classical couple of minutes? And then, you know, that I know at least one topic you want to talk about, but I'm curious about more. Thanks, Matai. So the last time we met, I was building up my consulting work, which was around uh, financial inclusion, especially for women who are underbanked and unbanked. 
so my my passion area is sustainable development goals which is gender equality and poverty elevation so i feel technology is a big enabler in that aspect so the work i have done in asean and very recently in the pacific islands puts a sharp focus on how technology can reach the last mile where traditional banks would not like to go because they don't really see economies of scale and the business use case um and while i was working in the fintech space in the pacific i chanced upon uh, some research which was talking about super apps being the future of um, financial inclusion so i got intrigued and that's how i started working on a book and i'm sure we're going to talk more about it but uh, we are here today because i would be launching the book very soon um and it's coming out uh, in december in singapore followed by the worldwide release what's the title of the book it's called one stop um and, and i'm sure no points for guessing one stop because it's a one stop solution where you can enter the ecosystem of a super app and you're able to do anything and everything i actually uh, i didn't know about it so the, as usually i wing most of my interviews but uh, now <laughs> now that you mentioned this it is true that uh, there are a couple of super apps uh, notably one in fact of an africa is called gozem Ooh. and uh, gozem is a typical example of uh, an application that started from ride hailing but very quickly become uh, a full fledged fintech with uh, you know digitization of payslips uh, peer to peer payments uh, insurance uh, loans to be able to afford the vehicle uh, you know uh, and uh, a credit scoring that is based on uh, the 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 patterns that the different drivers are having in the app so interesting actually is this a worldwide phenomena this uh, uh, um, uh, super apps being the driver for a vector for financial inclusion so as they say the need or the necessity is the mother of innovation and if you look at the perfect use cases coming from uh, china and the emerging markets it usually is about uh, a market gap and you rightly said uh, gozem has made that mark uh, so usually when you see a super app model there's a backbone and in case of grab it was right hailing in case of in case of wechat it was the messaging so that's the driving factor that's how you pull your customer in by by based on their interaction and the stickiness to the app they keep coming back because you are giving them plethora of services so you will be surprised to know that bechat today has 3 million services or mini apps into their ecosystem um so the idea is matayo basically to do more with less of friction so the minute you are able to give personalized information to the customer based on their data transactions like you said the data monetization part credit scoring that's where the real play comes because you know this customer is working that's why she's ordering her uh, goods to be delivered after 9 pm and then you know that this person is uh, a working woman this is how this is how much she earns she's a good, good customer when you're lending money to her so on and so forth but uh, going back to a question whether we really see this phenomena worldwide the answer is no Elon Musk recently said he wants Twitter X to be a one app super app thing. Uh, it remains to be seen whether he is going to be uh, implement that. But uh, when you look at the success stories of super app, it's usually the Eastern world. So they're coming from China, Vietnam, Japan, Singapore, Thailand, India. Uh, but there are also potential uh, players uh, who are in the rat race as well. But I, I think the Western world is more inclined towards specialist or specialized kind of apps. So they go to one single app for travel booking. They go to the other one for their other needs. So uh, there is no horizontal offering in the Western world where you just go into the ecosystem and stay there. Because typically in China, people would spend 90% of the time either on WeChat or AliPay. and these two players put together control 95% of the data that's coming from the payment space that's the reason why china decided to do cbdc central bank digital currency to make sure that the data comes back to the regulators and not bypassing them so i think uh, data is where the real action is and as long as these players whether it's grab goto or in india paytm phone pay as long as they're able to give uh, great service less friction more efficiency cross selling i think the customers will stick on and the addiction will go on
So you, you mentioned the Western world and, and you mentioned like the region, the Asian region, but what about Africa? The reason why I'm asking specifically the question is that, uh, and we talked about those in, uh, when we talk about frontier markets, so places where, you know, not the usual suspects and the usual suspects money has gone so far. So the Kenya, the Egypt, the Nigeria, the South Africa, and so on. In frontier market where the ecosystem is uh, underdeveloped, there is no critical mass for a single service to thrive. It, probably an approach where you have immediately a set of digital services that are built under a single umbrella is what makes the most sense. So I, you know, thinking the, uh, live, uh, I wonder whether or not the smaller the ecosystem, the more sense it makes uh, to go for the super app approach. Sam, um, the Africa example is great. And uh, when you look at the similar kind of geography with a specific island where I was uh, very recently working in Fiji, the M-Pesa, which is offered by Vodafone, uh, has been a game changer for the market because it's turning out to be a super app and essentially giving COVID because people couldn't go out. They were looking for a solution to pay, to send money to uh, the loved ones, especially uh, as you know, these countries, Pacific Island countries, rely so much on inward remittances coming from Australia, New Zealand, US. And Vodafone um, M-Pesa has has the ability to bring that change because during the COVID, the government was giving the payouts through the Vodafone wallet. So that's where the ability to go online started for a lot of these um, islanders who don't really have interaction with the mobile. And the first experience to the online world is through a mobile phone. And that's a key difference because when you look at the Western market, perhaps you and a couple of your other friends, started your journey uh, through a desktop, then a laptop. And therefore, it's easier for you to switch between devices. But we're talking about a large population, which is just relying on this one single device. And data increasing is getting very cheap. India has the cheapest data in the world. So people are not worried about downloading the apps. And uh, space, the storage space, is still a concern on the, uh, the mobile device. So imagine if with one app we're able to achieve so much, why would you go to app B and C? So for example, my mom, who's in her late 60s, it's better for me to teach her just using one single app where she can achieve everything rather than teaching her several apps. So I think uh, there is definitely um, the possibility of reaching people who are otherwise unheard of, unseen, because they don't really matter to the government, to the banks. Uh, and I think that's where the ability of super apps, whether it's Africa, uh, Oceania, and uh, South Asia, where there are a lot of poor people and they are working in uh, unorganized SME sector, which is really driving the economies. I think that's where there's the ability of providing solutions to those small businesses. And based on their daily transaction, we are able to give them print scoring as well because they, they may not have... Um, any kind of digital footprint to begin with or credit footprint to begin with, but they are able to build that over a period of time by being loyal to one app and they're building their data point there. Uh, why don't you bring the, the Samtech uh, angle in the in the conversation? Share a little bit more about the organization and how in the book as well, I suppose that, uh, you know, you, you, you would have applied that your uh, Good bias about uh, you know knowing well uh, you know yeah. this this uh, this part of the, the of the of the population that by the way in emerging markets uh, is uh, you know the the foundation of the economy right yeah that's a great question Matteo because uh, only now people are talking about gender lens investing uh, when they look at uh, sustainable res uh, res uh, responsible investing. But back in 2019, I was uh, looking at uh, my own career trajectory and I found that uh, most of the times when I entered the room, I could be the only a very few uh, brown women to be presenting uh, the, the fintech industry. And I thought we need to have a platform where we can bring uh, women together, amplify their voices, especially those who work in the tech space. And I myself a trained lawyer over the course of years, life brought me into fintech. But I, I feel that uh, it's our more responsibility to build forward because I had it easy. Not everybody is going to have it easy, perhaps. 
So if I'm able to uplift someone's uh, uh, professional journey, give them mentorship, and uh, especially the work we do with the regulators, where we're trying to come up with policy and regulatory frameworks which, help, which helps the gender equality, the sustainable development goals, I think that's where the real beauty is, because we're creating impact, which is, uh, of course, not uh, to be seen in terms of uh, results uh, in a day or two. Uh, it's a ripple effect. But it's satisfying for me because I come from a background where I went to a Hindi medium school and learned English very late in my life. And it was incredibly difficult for me to have that self-confidence uh, to start my career in Singapore and even for me to share my manuscript with the publishers because I lacked confidence, you know. I felt that I'm okay being on the stage, but when it comes to uh, putting my writing themes out there, I just reluctant. So... Um, this book coming out is also a validation for me that I can, I, I'm good enough and I can be accepted. So I think it's a victory uh, in a personal sense as well. But with Femme Partners, uh, it's a mission that I'm on uh, making sure that the world's 50 person point of view is represented and their voices are being heard. And not only in terms of giving mentorship, but also working with the regulators uh, in ASEAN, in the Pacific, so that. Um, they can walk the talk and they have that resources and the toolkits uh, whereby they can implement policies which are really representing uh, women SMEs and women who are unbanked and underbanked. I, I relate completely because uh, I myself wrote the book in English uh, and uh, <laughs> English not being my mother tongue, of course, that is obvious, but also I've never studied English mm. in my like uh, uh, school career. Uh, my mom was super surprised because I said, really, you wrote a book in English, is that possible? <laughs> and the publisher then translated in Italian, which is my mother tongue. And the reason why I didn't want to do it myself is that uh, it would have felt like uh, writing the book uh, all over again. So here's a question more for, uh, uh, you know, potential... Uh, uh, writers, auditors, you know, of, of Breaking Banks, you know, what was the click? What made you click uh, about the, you know, intention? And uh, what were the challenges in writing your first book? And I think, Natara, whatever I'm going to say will really resonate with you. Like I said, uh, not having that kind of confidence and, uh, you know, starting off. Um, I, I would say that uh, the ignorant mindset in starting something, the lack of knowledge or so-called ignorance helps you sometimes. And I'm being honest there because uh, I had no idea how to go about approaching the publishers. So it was as simple as cold calling. I reached out to them on LinkedIn. I asked them for the email address. I shared a part of a manuscript. And, uh, and along the process, a lot of people told me that being a first-time publisher, uh, first-time author, you should be uh, self-publishing. And I never considered that as an option because I always thought if I'm doing it, I'll do it right. And for me, doing it right was doing it with a traditional publishing house. And, um, and I was very clear, no matter how much time it takes, if I have to do update the manuscript, because you know, we work in FinTech, things evolve very quickly. What I saw around will not be relevant by the time this uh, episode is out. But I, uh, I think with the beginner's mindset of thinking of the world full of possibilities, I was just trying on. And all this while I was working as well. So it was not just my sole um, uh, task. You know, I had other things to do. I was moving countries. I moved from India to Singapore, Singapore to Fiji. Uh, but along this journey, what I realized is that um, persistence is the key. Because when I started off, I had a co-author. He worked out. And today the book just bears my name. So there's always uh, beauty and challenges if you don't give up. And um, I must have shared the manuscript with over 50 publishers, rejected. Um, but when it's meant to be, it's meant to be. So I think uh, knocking on the doors, that number game, that sales attitude works very much in every uh, part of life. And, um, and I think in terms of challenges, of course, we have writer's block. There are days when uh, you question yourself, you are introspecting whether it's really worth it to do this. But, um, but, but the one thing that really stayed with me was the fact that if I've come this far, I'm not going to give up. 
because I'm so invested and I, I'm, I'm someone who doesn't like to give up easily. So this is a good example, I think, easy for myself, the days when I'm going to be low and I'm looking for inspiration, I'm going to remind myself that I never thought this was going to be possible, but I uh, persevered. So that's where the real key is, because uh, when I spoke to the founders of the super apps, they were looking for the gap and they were trying to solve it. So the passion and the perseverance was going hand in hand. And I think it was the same with me as well. So I could resonate with the story that no matter what, if you think it's right for you, you keep on trying. I love this. Uh, I love this sincerity and also the fact that uh, you know the book started uh, almost as a mission, you know, and uh, and I also appreciate a lot the, the the effort and the perseverance in going finding a publisher. Also because you you know let's face it, guys, you don't get rich by publishing the, a book. Uh, but uh, it's an extremely fulfilling experience uh, because uh, even if it is, uh, you know, for that one reader that reads the book and gives you a comment, uh, you know, you you impact, you know, someone's life. And it doesn't matter if it's one uh, or 100,000, you know, the fact that there's something coming from, uh, you know, your brain, your experience, your heart, your your day-to-day -day life, uh, what you want to talk about, uh, impacts the life of someone else. Uh, that's fulfilling per se. That's my experience. I don't know if you have experienced some of it <laughs> no, uh, already. But... Right. You know, because I don't have kids. I think it's like uh, having a baby. It took me three years to have a baby. But... It's like leaving your legacy. Imagine I will be dead, and my book is going to be here for forever, right? Maybe people will forget about super apps, but at least I'm leaving a footprint in the world. That's how I look at it, because I was having this conversation with my mom, and she said, so how much money are you going to make out of this? I said, I'm not going to be a millionaire. People are writing books to be uh, making money. But I told her, this is my legacy, right? And people will remember me for doing this. It's just like putting a piece of you out in the world. And I, I'm sure you relate to this because uh, you have been doing this for so long. It just feels, uh, it's, it's a personal journey, of course, but also uh, fascinating that once the world reads it, how it's going to grow. Um, I don't know, fortunately, unfortunately, I'm already thinking of book two. <laughs> so, of course you would. But I learned you the second is going to be much harder than the first. Really? Yeah. Why is that? I thought I have, I have made it now. <laughs> But you know, but I, I wish you, I wish you all the best. I mean, the, in the different uh, comments, we're going to um, put the link where people can buy the, the book. The book is called One Stop. Nea, thank you so much for being with us on Breaking Max Europe, and we are live from the Singapore FinTech Festival. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mattia, for having me. And I hope to see you at the next festival or somewhere in the world because I love your energy, the kind of smile you bring and the big hug I get. <laughs> I look forward to staying in touch. Thank you for having me. That's great. And guys, it's a wrap. I am here with Richard from Antwerp. Uh, Richard, welcome to Breaking Man's Europe. Oh, this is new to me. And thanks so much for having me, Mathieu. So uh, I need to tell you know how we met. Uh, Richard was in my panel yesterday uh, in a in a talent uh, uh, vertical of uh, of this show, and uh, so we we sort of stumbled upon each other at the cocktail in the first day, and we discovered we have a common uh, a common passion, which is uh, uh, talent and how to upskill people and how to give access to better careers to as many people as possible. But before getting into this, maybe just a couple of words, uh, please introduce yourself. You have an amazing life already, uh -huh. <laughs> even if you don't show the age you are. But uh, uh, please share a little bit your story with our audience. All right, thanks, thanks so much, Matthew. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Richard Sikhambian, um, and I was born and raised in China. Um, but I have a, a, a rhetorical life, so to speak. Uh, I actually like went abroad for my high school, interesting enough to Singapore here, uh, for my high school and pre-university education. Although if you know where the Raffle Hotel was, which is pretty weird for being a former Singaporean, right? Uh-huh, yeah. I, I miss the country a lot. I mean, like after living here, I almost kind of think about, you know, coming here 
to meet my friends and just it's very interesting for it to be kind of putting ourselves back to a place which you've been staying long enough, right? I was very bad <laughs> Yeah. So um, I actually went to Toronto, Canada for my university education. And after graduation, I went to the United States and worked at uh, Microsoft Seattle um, and then relocated to the Bay Area, San Francisco for my next job, which is uh, work for a company called Square. That's basically where it begins with all the syntax journeys and the hard crew from there. So I worked for Square for like five years and all the software engineer work on the data side. So it has been a pretty wonderful journey. Uh, it got me in, interested into the fintech uh, vertical, which I found to be fashionably useful and interesting, uh, which subsequently led to my next job uh, of N Group. Uh, I figured, you know, like I learned a lot of fintech on the West Hemisphere. It's probably going to be helpful and interesting to complete that story by learning the fintech on the East Hemisphere. Um, and Group has been a fabulous experience for me so far. Um, I began working there as a uh, technical strategist and then begin formalizing my role by dedicating most of my time uh, to open source as a, uh, as a technical initiative. So I built open source program office of Android from zero to one um, as I have been leading that initiative uh, since then. Yeah, so that's my journey so far. Uh, I would say spend a lot of time at four different countries. Um, Kind of like a fintech veteran. I don't know if I should call myself that, but yeah. So, but so, but interesting. It, you know, the I find that extremely interesting that uh, a giant like Android has a division that basically leads with the uh, open source software. Uh, what is actually your job? What do you What do you do? You mentioned that uh, you 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 have a team that is that does evangelism, I guess. But what else? Mm. Yeah. It's a very interesting question. So first of all, Ant Group actually, um, we uh, want to say that we began doing open source in 2021. Uh, that's not technically correct. The company has a long history with open source. In fact, I mean, like we have, um, we've been working on open source for like 10 plus years. Some of the open source projects in which we have now, like OceanBase and SofaStack and Brandon and Design, which are very famous uh, React uh, UI, uh, model library has been there for almost like six or seven years. So we began uh, doing open source as being a very formal manner from 2021. Um, and I have a, a team which covers two areas now. One is uh, open source program office, uh, which by a term refers to the central hub and the central, I would say, capability hub to ensure that you know the company can do open source in a compliant and secure way. That's rule number one. And then being able to help our uh, projects by offering them strategies, um, operations, uh, engagement, uh, and connect uh, connections with external uh, open source agencies like uh, foundations. Um, yeah, so we do a lot of, I would say, like, uh, I wouldn't call that liaison work. It's more like a deal maker work, as, as we use the term in the Bay Area, right? So we make things which otherwise won't be able to happen to happen by, you know, leading our open source to uh, work with external agencies, work with, you know, the government, other business partners and developers so that we can actually fully utilize the capability of our technology. On the other hand, we just, what we just recently began doing is to look at the evangelist side. Instead of calling them evangelist, I would probably use the term developer experience advocate. Um, that matters a lot because it matters if it's me to you or you to me. Um, what we believe that, you know, like uh, for a company like Ant Group, uh, with all this uh, advanced technology, and a few people actually knows, since I mean like our actual FinTech uh, business pillar uh, is not really exposing a lot of this kind of technical details to our users. But now we figure out, you know, like as a, as a tech company, uh, we can probably do more than just, you know, offering a business solutions to our end users. That's why we feel like, you know, open source can be a very nice vehicle, uh, which has this kind of like social impact component, as well as this kind of, I would say, potential to uh, help out SMBs to really be able to acquire certain skills in a fast and sustainable manner. 
Yeah, so that's also part of what our team do, is we begin building a small team, uh, trying to work with the developer uh, ecosystems and really learn what the ecosystem needs. So we bring a lot of this learnings back to see how we can help. It's interesting because it's a good transition to what I do wanted to talk about uh, next. So we, uh, we share this uh, uh, willingness and aspiration, you know, that, uh, that I had uh, and I still do uh, about uh, upskilling talent in emerging markets. Okay? Uh, and uh, you guys, auditors, uh, already know how passionate I am about it. Uh, and uh, an AI course in Africa is uh, three times less developed than uh, an average of an AI course in Europe. And I'm pretty sure that for uh, more emerging markets, it's, it's the same. So starting from that uh, sort of a statement, uh, we, we, we shared uh, a lot of passion about uh, what the world should do to upskill uh, some of these young talents in emerging markets, uh, to get them better job, better salaries, uh, to inspire more, uh, more young people. And uh, it, is, it is a topic that seems close to your heart as well, right, Richard? Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely true. Um, I mean, we don't know each other for two days. It feels like a decade long. Uh, I think that's part of the reason. Uh, we have something in common, and uh, something in common, which is education, is um, in fact something I'm very passionate about. Uh, I've been talking to my friends lately about you know my MBTI. Uh, I'm a EFJ, which is a very teacher persona. <laughs> yeah, so things are connected now. Um, but I mean, put things in perspective, um, just part of uh, me, about education, that are part of open source by education. We can talk about them one by one. Um, and you mentioned about upskill. That's very interesting. Um, because nowadays, right, the, the world is, I would say, the technology advancement is accelerated to a, a pace in which it's almost impossible to imagine you could kind of rewind ourselves like 100 years ago, right? Uh, even for my father's generation, my father was working uh, in a TV station for 42 years. And that's his only job. He's very proud of it and he's very good at it. But for our generation, that's not the case. So what we need to do for our uh, generation is like we, we keep exploring, right? So I use the word exploring. Um, and when you're exploring your opportunities, you realize that you know, the skills you need will forever change. Um, so that's why education is really like one thing, you know, which kind of, it used to be referring to a stage in which, you know, before you're coming to workforce, you do your education. But now education actually goes a long way. Almost kind of comes It's part you. of the journey, right? It's part of the journey. It's part of, as we call this kind of infinite game. I love that book, by the way. Uh, yeah, so now education is part of that uh, infinite game. And people can, um, people need to, you know, just keep educating themselves. Um, and your question is very interesting, right? Your question is like, if we are upscale uh, ourselves or, you know, if as an institution, so those are two different perspectives. Um, I share my side of the story. Um, I, I'm actually those kind of, I would say, like lifelong learner. The term seems to be big, but I, I really mentioned that I love the idea. Um, so um, I begin my, actually, like, I have um, a bachelor degree of electrical engineering. But then I was doing software. Um, but after I do a couple of years of software, I actually took a part-time MBA because I realized you know part of my skills was actually underutilized. Um, so after taking the MBA, I'm getting my current job at Ant Group, which is a tech strategy and open source, which seems a pretty interesting hybrid um, of my skill set. But uh, it's just like my own perspective about you know high pursuit education. Um, we have these kind of vehicles and opportunities everywhere. Uh, we are living in a world which we don't lack information. The information is no longer the bottleneck. But the education material might be. So we talk about that, right? So like, I, um, I kind of feel the same way, right? It's not like the information or the education material is not there, but it's the disbursement or the distribution can be a problem. Um, it's only after I came back to China and worked there, I, I began realizing that some of the so-called, I would say, intuitions or you know like the fundamental knowledge are not really fundamental um because people might not have seen the video you saw right people probably haven't already experienced the idea 
they probably only know the word AI without knowing about machine learning and Python and Char. So it's very hard for them to do things like my way of you know trying to self-serve and upskill along the way. In fact, I mean most of the time for the like you know we talk about the AI revolution about how that might change people's career and job opportunities. It's actually the people who their job will be affected the most are least aware of the material. So I share your vision. Um, how can we make um, you know those high quality education material and disperse them to the individuals who actually need them the most and make them aware before it's too late? It's a very challenging problem. Don't you think that, and this is like, uh, I'm literally thinking out loud here, that uh, well, th there are two problems. Like one is that, uh, especially in some emerging countries, uh, the, the education system is simply, you know, last century. So it's not only that there are less hours, but the quality of these uh, few hours uh, is not as good, as good as it should be. And certainly, it, it is uh, too academic uh, for what the world needs. Like, True. as an example, you know? True. One thing is uh, we teach someone to code. Mm. And another thing is we teach someone how to collect data for the credit scoring, you know, ah. through coding. But today, mm. you know, ChatGPT can do the codes, you know? Mm -hmm. What you need is someone smart enough to instruct someone mm -hmm. to write the code. And this is what is completely missing. This is the right. first consideration. Right, right, right. And the second one is that, uh, you know, I think that uh, there is a combination of uh, like hard and soft skills and mm -hmm. the soft skills part is completely neglected today. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we were talking yesterday about uh, upskilling and reskilling from the corporate point of view. Right. But what about the individual point of view? I mean, right. as an individual, yeah. where do I upskill to? And yeah. who is helping me finding my journey, right? So this yeah. is something that uh, certainly 30 years ago, when I did my computer science degree, was completely absent. Uh, uh. This you have a, now. You have a lot of uh, potential external sources to do the same, but uh, in emerging markets, it's very hard uh, to help people that way because people, you know, very often. Uh, when we, when I do some of the coaching open for all, I have photographers ah. that think that they are startup, yeah. and they go fundraising from venture capitalists. But what they are is a photographer, but in their mind, mm -hmm. they are entrepreneurs. Therefore, yeah, they go on funding. That's a know? very interesting perspective. Yeah, exactly. Another, another exactly. Story, yeah. But, but truth is that they lose their time if, as a photographer. Mm -hmm. uh, you go fundraising to a venture capitalist, right? That's true. Because, uh, it, so, it, all I'm saying is, uh, what about uh, how can we help uh, these young students uh, for the more fundamental part of their journey, mm -hmm. which is part of the of the upskill, right? Yeah, and yeah, what's yeah. your view on this? Um, yeah, actually, there are like multiple layers of that question. So let's maybe peel them one by one. Um, I do want to address uh, the biggest monkey on our back is how can we actually help, um, you know, each individual, especially, you know, when they're young students and new to their lives, haven't really entered the infinite game, how can I help them? I think what you're doing is helping them. Podcast, right? So, um, Matthew, you have a very valid point. You know, the education system takes a very long time to transition. It has its own initial, right? So by Newton's first law, right? <laughs> so it won't really change. Um, and there's a reason for that because I mean, if your education system is too agile or you know robust, uh, like you know, um, it changes too fast, it it kind of probably hurts more than helping because you won't, uh, you because on the workforce side you will not have like a consistent you know like standard uh, um, providers uh, of the talent which you know the other side needs um, because it you know adaptions take time. But what we can do now uh, is definitely you know like we can build so-called supplemental and complementary material to our education system through, you know, channels of disbursement like podcasts. Um, of course, you know, like there are a lot of podcasts out there too. Um, but the way I'm looking at it is like, um, I think for something like soft skills, uh, I am a strong believer, by the way, for soft skills and how they can fundamentally change your life. Yeah, I shared on the stage yesterday, you know, like I took an MBA degree 
uh, but I mean, the putting business side aside, you know, what really benefits me the most, uh, I feel like two causes. One is the negotiation, and the other is like power and politics. So those two causes brings a lot of soft skills to me, and I begin learning, oh, this is what I did wrong last time when being this kind of internal collaboration. That fixed a lot of, you know, like me, not only from, you know, my personal perspective, but how I interact at workforces, you know, with my spouse and the rest of the world. Um, yeah, so I would say that, you know, the first thing we need to do is to be able to offer those material and find individuals and really trying to help them realizing, uh, you know, the importance of skills so that they can acquire, up, uh, you know, upskill, upskill skills right? yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> to help themselves. That's, uh, that's probably the first step. And then the second step is um, um, we can potentially provide some guided rail um, because, you know, people are afraid of uncertainties. Um, so you can tell them, hey, you know, your sky, the sky is the limit. That doesn't help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we, uh, we can need to go back to the situations like, you know, um, by helping them tailor towards one particular direction. And this is why I feel like, you know, the FinTech education can be an interesting area. Uh, it doesn't mean that we only have to focus on FinTech, but because you and me, we believe in FinTech. Right, so fintech is a very interesting area because it has been there since the very beginning of human lives, and I think it's going to be continuing staying there. And now, finance is no longer a world, you know, which only belongs to a small group of elitism. Right, we all need to manage our own wealth. Right, even if you have like small amount, like fund group, we have this wallet called Eurobao, in which you can save your money in, and then like you know make two percent of earnings every single day. Right, so so it's not really that far away from you know, every, every individual, but do they really have the skills, right? Or are they aware that, you know, there can be such a skill can be a very useful skill, especially in a technology savvy world to help them thrive for the rest of their life? Probably not. So having a lot of guided rail in terms of, hey, you know, um, if you learn mathematics, it can be really helpful for the anti-money laundering aspect or, you know, the risk control aspect of FinTech. If you are doing physics, uh, or you know, if you are doing physics or chemistry, there can be a lot of useful learnings from how um, you know the material changes. That has something to do with how our economic system works. Yeah. That's a very long story. Yeah, but yeah, 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 I like yeah, making yeah. metaphors. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, like being able to link their day to days to what really can be useful in their job, um, as I find out, can be a very nice way of offering this upscale. Uh, capability. So that's what I what I call as a you know second step, providing the rails. And last but not least, you know they're probably going to be putting their own trains down there. We need guided, uh, you know, and potentially some more I would say data driven ways of learning. I love your numbers. It, it's my third time hearing that number, and that's very powerful. Um, I wish I have a number for you for the you know AI education in China, but I don't. So that's a problem. So. I think the, the third part is like we might need to really begin seeing some of those uh, numbers put it on the table so we can know how severe the issue is. Um, and doing that will require a lot of collaborations from the education institutions and um, some of the people like you and me who cares a lot about this as well as the students themselves. Um, I think that it's super important for them to actually know that, you know, um, we need a map, and they're actually the driver of the train. Yeah, you you, you touch uh, on you touch upon something that uh, I think is super important, uh, and one factor that uh, uh, I think is missing. But you you talked about in the third point is uh, there is not enough collaboration between uh, academia and the private sector today. Right, and uh, and I believe that if you start having the, the private sector throwing challenges uh, at students uh, mm -hmm. so that they can work on something that is not pure theory, mm -hmm. but is actually potentially even useful to target the best talent and understand how they collaborate mm -hmm. and maybe give some fresh ideas in solving some of the problems. Mm -hmm. That might be useful. Today, there are some of this collaboration, of course, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, because the, the private sector needs talent, so of right. course they look, but uh, more of this should happen, especially 
between uh, emerging economies and developed economies. Don't you think? Yeah, um, I would only say so. Uh, I mean, first thing first, we're not in a abundant situation, right? It's not like we have too much education material yeah. that people are having hard time pick and choose. We're having we're in a scarcity situation, right? We don't have sufficient material, and as you mentioned, there's not enough collaborations. So, begin having those kind of ice breaking process definitely helps. Um, it's not hard thing to say, you know, like which one is I would say the solution. Um, so at this moment, you know, for myself, uh, you know, and for M Group, we're exploring. Uh, many of these options. So, for instance, on the open source side, what we're currently exploring is um, we're exploring of using open source as a technical training process, as I put on the stage yesterday, right? Mm -hmm. If you're a software engineer, the best way for you to upskill yourself is to do open source. Yeah, yeah. Because that's like, that's what bridges you from academia to the industries. And it's fast and furious. It's also nice. You know, people in open source communities, most of them, they're super nice. They're not trying to scrutinize you, but rather you are helping them too. So those kind of community feelings um, is something which I found to be a very nice education environment. So that's one thing which we're exploring. Um, and Andrew is also having this 10 times a thousand um, foundation, uh, which is for technical inclusion. So that's basically the top tier designs in which we are training um, talent for um, the other countries. Like, so a thousand talents for uh, other countries, 10 years investment. So that's very dedicated effort. So that's probably like an effort on, uh, you know, on the top level in which you know, we can try to do something big and glorious addressing the talent problems. But kind of back to uh, square one, right? Um, what we found out is like being able to begin acting, just like how we're saying engineering is like agile style. Try something, take the feedback, uh, adapt and adjust and then try something else and then adjust um, is something which I figure out you know like uh, as someone from the industry uh, who is running open source program office uh, that's a that's a that's a better way which suits uh, how we can actually make more impact you know what is amazing is that uh, uh, conversations like this uh, you know uh, leave me hopeful that uh, if some more people like which are, are coming to the industry probably will soon bridge that gap in a way that is today unimaginable. And, uh, and I really hope that uh, in a couple of years, we're going to have another podcast like this one and talk about <laughs> what, we, what we achieved together. Richard, thank you very much for being with Breaking Bad's Europe. Well, thanks so much, Matthew. And this experience is amazing. And I really appreciate our opportunity. And everyone, please, if you're a software engineer, do open source. Thank you. <laughs> Great, guys. It's a wrap. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Breaking Banks Europe, a Provoke Media podcast in cooperation with Fintech Stage. Don't forget to tweet us out, shout out, or post to the team at Breaking Banks EU on Twitter. If there's something or someone you'd like to hear on our cast, let us know. See you next week on Breaking Banks Europe.